0: I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble. Gum. They want benign indifference. They want us drunk. We could be pets, we could be food. but all we really are is livestock.
1: There are, of course, those who do not want us to
0: speak. The world needs a wake-up call. We're gonna phone it in. To the Great Deception podcast, I'm your host Matt. Thanks for joining me. Sorry about the delay, folks. I had to take a week off last week. I got hit with the Wu flu, the old China virus. China's finest got me, uh, and I was wiped. Monday, I was delirious. Didn't leave my bed. Tuesday, I was functional, but could barely move. Uh, it was it was rough fevers, chills. I've never sweat like that in my life. Um, so Wednesday, I uh, I started to shake it and started feeling a little bit better. And then Thursday, uh, I thought it was good. I went, I went to the gym and after about five minutes, my body's like, no, nah, you're not ready yet. You're still recovering. So needless to say, uh, Friday, I got back into it. Um, I did the uh, talk at the Tavern with our friend uh, over at My Third Eye Podcast and uh, my buddy Ghost. And and uh, nah, honestly, I, I still have brain fog from it. So uh, Friday night was a fun show. Um, I highly recommend you guys go check that out. But then Saturday I woke up and uh, had a head cold and have been battling that off and on all weekend, so... Needless to say, I had a little brain fog tonight, but I had a great conversation um, with a gentleman by the name of Esoteric Eddie. He has a YouTube channel called Esoteric Eddie TV, and he uh, just wrote a book called uh, Lucifer Mystery Revealed, which is out on Amazon. So uh, check out in down in the show notes. I'll have links for everything. Um, but check out Eddie's work, man. He's a really interesting guy. Uh, we hit on a lot of really cool, some of my favorite topics. Um, he goes back all the way to the Sumerians and uh, and the uh, Anunnaki. We get into Enki and Enlil um, and some of the uh, uh, Zoroastrianism. We touched on that for a little bit. Uh, we got into the Akashic Records and uh, the Garden of Eden. And then one of my other favorite things is the uh, serpent symbolism and uh, we talked about that and the role that it's played over history throughout time and uh and then we wrapped it up with a little he got into some project gateway stuff which i find fascinating um overall it was a really fun conversation i had with eddie um i apologize guys i'm still feeling a little under the weather so i was not a hundred percent for this and uh really at times I felt like I was in a fog and having a tough time putting sentences together, and I still am right now. But with that said, uh let's get going with the show and I hope to get back in a in the regular schedule and get things back on track. I know Monday night, tomorrow night we have or not tomorrow night, Monday night, we have uh a great Monday night master debater. We're gonna do a little Christmas special. Got some good guests lined up for that, so stay tuned for that. That should be out on Tuesday. Um, But with that said, let's get this show on the road. Back from the grave, I am, and here is a great conversation with Esoteric Eddie. And welcome to another episode of the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Tonight, we are joined by author... uh, Esoteric occult, uh how do I want to say this? Adventurer, you know, uh uh, esoteric Eddie. Um Eddie, uh, welcome to the show, my friends.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Uh glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm glad you reached out to me. Uh I uh we we came across each other through email and uh and you happened to send me a book that you wrote and When I was like, Oh man, here we go. And so I opened it up and I was like, Ooh, this is an interesting title. And and then we start, I start reading into it and I'm like, okay. And I, and I have these certain boxes I like to see if they get checked along the way and uh, you know, random ones. And, and you seem to hit them all going way back Hmm. to uh, uh, olden times, you know, the Anunnaki and things like that. And all the way up through Sumeria Babylon Um, And it hits everything along the way, which is fascinating. And so I wanted to know what got you into um, the esoteric or or the occult? Because it's not something everybody gets into.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, um, I'm 27 as of right now. I first started studying this stuff about when I was 12 years old. Um, my whole life has kind of revolved around esotericism, primarily because I grew up in a religious family, both Catholic and Christian. They weren't very like strict on it, but um, it was a big part of my life growing up. And I've always been a rebellious kind of guy. Uh, and um, I started questioning the Bible early on. I knew there was something deeper there. And the first time I, my mind was kind of shattered was when I was about eight years old, when my grandpa, who used to be a pastor, um, told me that he had seen a UFO. And uh, I asked him what, how, what that, you know, made him feel about God. And he simply said he didn't know. So that kind of like blew my mind. And I was like, well, there's definitely something going on, but um, right around 12 to like 14 years old, um, I I was listening to a lot of conscious hip hop, which was throwing knowledge at me that I was unfamiliar with. And then I was also getting into some cannabis and, and psychedelic mushrooms around that time. And then I started stumbling upon a lot of videos and documentaries and uh, books. And, and I think it was actually when I, when I first read Zechariah Sitchin's The Twelfth Planet and then his following um, books in that series that my mind was just completely open. And from then on up to now, it's just been a, a never-ending journey of trying to uncover the lost and hidden history.
0: Now, I, I can only imagine what that must have been like to have your grandfather tell you, I don't know you know, that's gotta be one of those. And and you said you were eight at the time. I mean, that's a, that's a lot to swallow as an eight year old and, and to be even to understand it. Right. I mean, I think you were advanced at that time because I don't think at eight years old, I was really could understand the concept of, of God, you know, I mean, I think you're more in that, in the cartoonish version of it at, at, at that stage. I mean, my son's eight years old right now. So, um, yeah, you know, I think he understands the concept, but if I were to tell him I saw a UFO, I don't think it would impact his, you know, his thought process whatsoever.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, something, like I said, something early on was just kind of like in my spirit and in my mind, and um, my whole life's kind of revolved around that aura of something else is going on, and and my grandpa, actually, when he used to take care of us, he used to watch Unsolved Mysteries, so uh, I was exposed to that. I watched like the, the Betty and Barney Hill episode in like alien abductions. So very early on, I kind of had an idea of what aliens
0: were and stuff like that. So what what led you down the avenue of writing a book? Because that's, you know, that's not something that you just, ah, OK, I, I'm going to decide today I'm going to write a book. And especially, you know with the the subject matter that you are, are approaching on. I mean this it, the, the name of the book is the Lucifer Mystery Revealed. And you know I, I like the angle that you're taking here because I've never you know I until recently I never even would have questioned it. Mm. Um I, I you know you just assume that there's Satan, that there's Lucifer, that it's you know riddled throughout the Bible. And then, you know, when I, I, I hadn't read the Bible myself until uh, last year, 2020, I got into it. And wow. uh, d- during the lockdown, I started, you know, just reading through it a lot of, you know, with all the chaos that was going on around the world and a lot of people saying there's a lot of truth in here that you can relate. I was like, okay. So I started, I, read, I haven't read the whole thing, but I read the whole uh, entire Old Testament and then a lot of the you know Matthew and things like that in the New Testament, but uh yeah. it, it's fascinating so what what yeah. led you to decide to write this book
1: yeah, absolutely um most of my occult and esoteric studies kind of circles around the Bible and the biblical uh philosophy and mythology but um <clears throat> so from twelve up to about 23, I'd done a lot of different things in my life. I got, I got uh, other backgrounds in like music and graphic design, which I still use today. But um, I had some early personal successes around my early 20s. I, I actually produced a couple documentaries and wrote my first book when I was about 23. Not going to get into that one uh, because my early my early personal successes were actually um, industry failures, as I like to say. They didn't really cut through. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know how I wanted to market myself. So this book is actually technically my second book. But when it comes to writing, um, I've always had a talent for it. And the first time I realized that was in fourth grade when I when I won uh, a contest for um, the best uh, fictional story. And and me being an introverted kid at the time, that was like awakening a power within me because I was like, well, I didn't like sports. I didn't really like any of that stuff but I had something that I could still share to the world and be and um, show confidence through. So I, I've always been a writer, I've always had that talent, but um, right around 25 years old, right before the pandemic hit a couple of years ago, I took everything I knew, everything that I've been through and was like, well, I still want a shot at trying to produce something of use to the world, especially the truth community that raised me up to be the esoteric scholar that I am. So I decided that I wanted to write a potent and unique book, and that would be on the subject of Lucifer, because even for me at the time, I was even wondering, like, who is Lucifer? What is Lucifer? So I started, you know, answering my own questions. And then that led me to this array of of knowledge, which culminated into the book.
0: And and it's a fascinating take, because what you're essentially saying is, is that Lucifer isn't it's it's a, it's a creation. It's a, a a figment of our imagination, so to speak. Um, and until recently, like I said, I, I would have said you're you know that's kind of crazy. Obviously, there's there's a devil and there's God, there's heaven, there's hell. But when yeah. you start digging back into it a little bit more, you start seeing that these are more constructs um and and there isn't a whole lot of basis in them at least biblically according to you know your book there's yeah. it's, it's mentioned sparsely so what do you think well it's kind of a loaded question why do you think there's the need for it then
1: mm. okay uh the need uh, i'm just kind of looking up my notes right here well the need for it i think and in my book, I kind of go into this. The fault is really the church's fault, but also the occultist's fault. And in the book, I scrutinize both parties. It's not just the church that's propagating this idea of devil and God. It's also the occultists, the early occultists, like Eliphas uh, Levy, Blavatsky, Crowley, you know all the classical occultists, because early on in um, the occult. Uh, they grabbed onto the idea of Lucifer and took it to even further heights than the church ever could and, and made it even way more fanatical. And I think the need is that we are always looking to explain abstract experiences in life. And that's actually the first sentence of the book is it's human nature to, uh, to rationalize abstract experience. So I, th- I think the need is that we all know we are spiritual beings. We intuitively know that we're spiritual and that we're more than this body and that life is more than we can see. So we, we uh, the occult being rebellious and against the church, but still wanting spirituality, took the idea of Lucifer and then made that their God um, just because naturally they are rebellious.
0: Which is which is very interesting and you have it going all the way back to the Sumerians which that's that's a very interesting time period in itself right because yeah. we, we until recently there wasn't a whole lot known until there was the discovery of the cuneiform tablets yeah. so uh, that adds a whole new spin to this and I I, I really uh, appreciate the detail that you can go into. Uh, in, in the book, especially with Enkiel and Enki and, and Enlil, that story and yeah. the flood story that permeates throughout history. And it's, it's, you know, there's, there's always two things, destruction and deception, it seems like mm. in these stories mm. and, and you yeah. see it over and over again. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. With the Sumerians. Um, and we can unpack that a little bit if you'd like. Um, For those that may or may not know, so the Sumerian, so prior to the 1800s, the Sumerian civilization was lost to history. And even in uh, like 600 or 700 BC, even then they were like lost to history. Um, The Assyrian kingdom, which was kind of like the last tale of the Sumerian lineage, the Assyrians who were, uh, you know, right around like the, the, the last king, Ashurbanipal, I think he was right about, I don't know his date, so I don't want to say it and get get that wrong. But King Ashurbanipal was the last Assyrian king. And even in his time, he, he stated that it was rare for anybody to, to even know and be able to read Sumerian language. And as he states in a physical text that we have, that he was gifted the talent by the God of writing and scribes to be able to read Sumerian, the languages before the flood. And he says that before the flood. Um, So the Sumerians, we we rediscovered or discovered them in the 1800s, and um, we started realizing that these people were the progenitors of all civilization, modern civilization. And when I say modern, I mean post-Atlantean, you know, for those who subscribe to that, you know, because, of course, the Atlantean era is all pre-modern world that we know, pre-history. But we started realizing these Sumerians were the progenitors for all society and civilization that we know. I mean, they... The list goes on and on of all the first that they had, but what was what was really important and, and significant were their writings about the gods, because the Sumerians, as they state, everything they did was in regard to the gods. So when we start to look at who the gods were to them, they were a hierarchical family, starting with Anu, who wasn't the end all be all creator. He was just another god. He actually has his own story, and he used to be a young god who had to fight another god for the throne. But in, in the end, he became the, the leader of the gods. And then he had two sons, Enki and Enlil. Enki being the firstborn, but not the rightful heir to the throne because he was born of a concubine. And then Enlil, the secondborn, but the rightful um, successor to the throne because he was born of a half-sister. And in there, the rivalry starts to play out. And, and both of those brothers kind of have a rivalry all throughout Sumerian mythology and even stretches down to their grandkids and great grandkids. And some can say even to their lineage of today.
0: And and it's fascinating because the two brothers story, right? Because we see that prevalent in the Bible as well with the Cain and Abel story. And there's some similarities between the two, but at the same time, they're very, very different stories. But the relationship between the brothers, especially Enki and Enlil, uh, Enki and Enlil, is yeah. interesting because one is supposedly in the carer of man, and the other is basically, you know, let's destroy him. Let's let's restart. Yeah. We want to. We've got to reset over and over again.
1: Yeah, and uh, scholars or the early Sumerian Assyriologists or scholars started to realize that the flood story goes back to Sumer, and in the Bible, the Old Testament, the flood story, um, you know, simplifies the two brothers into one God, but in the in the Bible story, we see God wanting to drown mankind and this, this, and that, and then later on changes his mind and saves one, you know, family of people through Noah, and that was always kind of a weird thing that that biblical scholars you know, they found that weird, the capriciousness in his nature. And the reason for that is because the story was based on the Sumerian story where it was Enki and Enlil, this, you know, kind of combating what they should do with, with humanity. And it was Enlil who decided, let's just let them all drown. Let's just all, you know, let's get rid of them. It was a mistake to create them. And it was Enki who, who uh, went out, you know, behind the gods back and and saved um, the Noah-like character, which was known as Atrahasis.
0: Yeah, fascinating. So it it, it's it it almost rivals it to a T, and that's what we see throughout the Bible, though, right? With the biblical stories, they're re-incantations of other myths of other, uh, you know, some some pagan stories, some astrotheology, you know, astrotheologies involved with the with the sky clock and everything, and so you the, the Bible is kind of a mix up of a lot of things, um, a collection uh, of a lot of different stories. And what I found interesting in, in your book though, was one of the, th- again, going back to the whole Lucifer concept of it being so prevalent, but it's not really named in the Bible. How do you think it became so prevalent if it's not in the physical text?
1: Uh, Lucifer.
0: We're saying. Yeah. The Lucifer Satan yeah. concept. Yeah
1: sure okay all right we can start to impact this so this is where things get you know kind of deep um so first of all lucifer and satan um are two different characters etymologically and contextually now in the book i don't really go deep into satan i do kind of go over a few brief points um but people need to understand even in the occult and in christianity satan and lucifer are, are pretty much two different characters even though they are kind of lumped into one character um, they aren't. And the, and the reason being is, for one, Satan used to be looked at way differently in, in early Judaism. He wasn't this all-encompassing ruler of evil. He was actually in coherence or in collaboration with, with God. God allowed him to test people and test Jesus. Jesus. And um, Satan actually as a word in, pre, in, in uh, early Judaism was a lowercase word. It was an adjective. It was ha-satan, meaning the Satan. So anybody could have could be a the Satan. It, so it was just a, an adjective. But later on, um, it became this idea of, of a, a spiritual Satan that just is the all-encompassing ruler of, of evil that can possess people. And that that idea kind of primarily came out of uh zoroastrianism which uh, the jews were influenced by during their babylonian captivity and, and i do go into that in the book but i just want to stress that the book is mostly about lucifer um, i can't answer some questions about satan but when it comes to lucifer it's very clear how that came to be now and um i'll break it down for us so i asked myself before i wrote the book how did we even come to know the name lucifer and I found that um, in the Kings James version, which was the first English authorized version, the word, the name Lucifer was only used once in the entire Bible. And it was in Isaiah 14, 12. And it's the famous Lucifer verse, oh, Lucifer, how art thou fallen?" so on and so forth. And Isaiah, he was a, a high ranking scribe who worked amongst a lot of the, the kings of Judea. And he was a prophet as well. But... Um, before the English, the English was translated from the Latin Vulgate, and the Latin Vulgate was translated from the Greek, uh, the Greek Septuagint, and then, of course, all of those were translated from the original Hebrew. But we get the word Lucifer from the Latin translation, because Lucifer is a Latin word comprising of two different words, luce and fere, Luce meaning light, fere meaning to bear or to bring, where we get the famous idea of Lucifer being the light bearer or light bringer. But in the in the uh, the Latin text, it was a lowercase word. It was an adjective, and it was actually used several places in the Bible. and um, actually it was used to refer to Jesus as well in the book of Revelation because in the book of Revelation, Jesus um, claims to be the Son of the morning as well, which is a whole another you know controversial topic. But it was an adjective, a lowercase word in the Latin Vulgate, and they used a, a proper translation from the Greek. So where we would see, Lucifer today in the Greek we would see phosphorus, which is their word equivalent to something that is bright or shining. And then all of that is translated from the Hebrew Halel ben Shahar, which means hello shining one, son of Shahar. And Shahar means the dawn. Or but more specifically, halel was um, was a deity in a Canaanite myth known as Athtar who was the son of another Canaanite deity by the name of Shahar. But what makes it even more complicated is that our ancient scribes, they, they uh, took a great deal or they, they were obsessed, I guess, with, uh, with, uh, cosmology, with astronomy, with celestial mythology. So doesn't, so not only does Lucifer and all those other translations mean something shiny and bright, it's also a word to that translates to Venus. And Venus, as we know, in its celestial mythology, is, you know, the sun uh, of the dawn or it's the light bringer because Venus is the brightest planet in the sky before the sun rises. So we see Venus in the sky and then the sun comes. So it has its own entendre, its own mythology. So we're taking all of that into consideration. Isaiah was using entendre metaphor when he was actually speaking about a Babylonian king who was arrogant and thinking that he was going to take over Judea. But he was saying, you are like Hillel Ben-Shahar. You are like Venus, the son of the morning, thinking that you're going to outshine God. But once God comes, you know, you'll be nothing. And in the Baal and we well, we'll just pause there. And just let you have any questions or comments there.
0: No, no, no. Keep going. That was great. The only thing, I mean, when you, when I hear the, the term light bearer and, and everything, it automatically makes me think of, of Freemasonry and, Mm -hmm. and their use of that concept as well. And I know in, in the book, you go into detail with uh, Manly P. Hall and he was one that I, you know, got into, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, that, that concept of the light bearer, it's not, it's devil worship it's not satan worship it's it's light worship you know it's the bringer yeah. of light knowledge and all that so uh very very fascinating how it all you know eventually it all ties in together it, you know it's yeah. a, it's a w- wicked web they weave they say so
1: yeah absolutely yeah so so that's where the word lucifer came from and that's where it originated from was that whole translational issue from halal ben shahar which was actually referencing an old Canaanite deity by the name of Astar And we know this because of the Baal cycle texts, that's the name of uh, some cuneiform that we have. And in those texts, there are different stories about Baal, the God and just his endeavors and escapades. And there's a little story where, where Baal or Baal, um, however you like to word it, he uh, decides to step down from his throne and amongst the gods, they're all conversing. Well, who's gonna, who's gonna rule in his stead? And Ahtar, this young deity, steps up and says, you know, I'll do it. And then they're kind of contemplating, "Yeah, maybe we'll let him. But then later on, it's, it's decided that they're not going to let Ahtar rule. So he just goes back to doing whatever he's doing. So it's also this story. It's also this reference to that story of like the Ahtar thinking he could step up to the throne. But then it's like he's just this young God and he's, he's not powerful enough to do so. Um, so that's kind of really what Isaiah was was referencing when he was saying, you know, Hallel Ben-Shahar. And that whole verse, you know, from Isaiah 14 on, he's actually talking down about a Babylonian king. So that's the translational issue there. And then um, in the early years of Christianity, some, some of the early, you know, Christian fathers and Christian scholars started to like look at the Isaiah verse and were perplexed by it and didn't know what to make of it. And especially when they when they translated it to an uppercase name, they were under the, the, the assumption or misinterpretation that Isaiah was referencing a, a deity named Lucifer. And then um, this whole this idea was born out of that, primarily through um, Oregon Adamantius. Oregon Adamantius was a early church scholar, early church father, and he was, he was later deemed as a heretic because he had some really wild and psychedelic ideas. Um, But, uh, but he was one of the first to propagate the idea within the church that there is a Lucifer and that uh, there is seemingly another force in the universe, which is at work here and who has some, you know, deceiving uh, agenda.
0: Yeah. And it seems like that, you know, was co-opted by the, the at least the catholic church along the way uh and, and used as a tool almost of control um by by having that lingering you know that <laughs> the forever you know if you sin you're going to hell and you're going to be with the devil or with satan with lucifer who whatever they that's you know however they wanted to word it at the time and it's kind of a miss you know one of the things i found interesting was what you're talking about here about lost in translation do you think a lot of issues are caused by the translation issues because we are going, you know, it's like the old telephone game where you're going from one language to another, to another, it's going to lose some of the significance along the way. It it can't be a one-to-one translation. Um, And we see that with other texts. So I was wondering if, uh, you know, with this, do you see that being a major issue here or a major driver in this idea?
1: Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I was younger, you know, uh, getting into this stuff, I was, you know, kind of fanatic about the idea about like the Illuminati and the elite. And although a lot of that does go on when it comes to like the biblical and sacred texts, I think there's less like manipulation going on and just more of just clerical error, just human error. We're just I mean, we're we were trying to understand texts from from a whole different culture, you know and translated into our culture and so a lot of just errors happened and then those errors caused these psychedelic spin-offs where we got you know narcissism and occultism and hermeticism and all that stuff but there is a lot of truth as i say in the book to lucifer but when we view him through not the not the isaiah verse but through the concept of the garden of eden story and the serpent
0: I I was just, uh, that's great. You read my mind. Because one of the things, and and you can tell by my logo here, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the concept of the serpent. Um, Because over time, the serpent has gone from being a symbol of knowledge, a a symbol of wisdom, to almost now it's been co-opted into a symbol of evil, uh you know a symbol of a low lying animal almost deceitful you can't trust a snake you know as they Mm -hmm. say so uh you know i find it interesting because that that adam and eve story right away there's the serpent and some say oh well the serpent is the devil but you know i've heard other people say no it's not it was wisdom it was it was knowledge that they were being given. It was symbolic. It wasn't a literal serpent. It was the concept of the serpent. And so yeah. go right ahead.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what I started to realize after reading Zechariah Sitchin, he was the first one that made it clear to me that that uh, Hebrew has a lot of has a lot of playful words. So Hebrew as a language, some words have a lot of different meanings, and they deliberately use certain words. So that people who really know can see beyond the, just the face, you know, definition. And one of those was the word that they used for serpent, because of course they didn't use the word serpent; they were used. They used the word um, nakash, nakash, um, and that can mean serpent, but it can also mean um, wise one or one who knows secrets. So they were being playful saying, yeah, sure, it's a serpent, but it's also somebody who's wise. So it was kind of a little dig. So they're saying whoever this person was, he was kind of being sly, like a snake, but he was wise, Nakash. And um, as we, now there's no real Sumerian equivalent to the Garden of Eden story. There's there's a lot of texts that have similar themes, but as we can kind of just speculate and as Zechariah Sitchin did, when we understand the two brothers, Enki and Enlil, it's obvious that Enlil, the more vindictive, more strict, militant, you know, God is the Yahweh concept. And then the more free-flowing, you know, creative, scientist, experimental guy is Enki, who was obviously the serpent, who was kind of, you know, just in- instigating in the Garden of Eden story. And he Enki's symbol was the snake in ancient Sumerian times. And um, in Sumerian, there was a term called uh, Ushumgal. Ushumgal, and Ushumgal means wise serpent, or, or yeah, wise serpent. And they they called their deities by that name, Ushumgal. So Enki was was a Ushumgal, a wise serpent. So it seems as if maybe somebody who within, who was there when the Bible was being put together might have known all of this and was kind of sneaking it in, sneaking it in there. But uh, I haven't come across any you know, factual evidence for that.
0: Yeah, and that was one of the interesting things I found in the book was the different myths associated with the snake that you pointed out too. And because it is a prevalent symbol across, you know, numerous texts, numerous mythologies, it it does have quite a significance.
1: Yeah, it does. And we can see that in the Americas too. And and Sitchin points that out that he he believes that Enki's family through his son, Nengisida, who supposedly is also taught the Egyptian god, that they left, you know, the Middle East and Africa and then went to the Americas to start the the Mayans and uh, the Peruvian cultures who all signified their deities as serpents.
0: Yes, which is fascinating. Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm starting to get into now is the... uh, The ancient American history, and it's fascinating going back there, and and there's so many different stories and possibilities of who were the original Americans, you know, was was it the Mayans, were there pre-Mayans, you know, what what natives, how many different tribes were there? Um, You're starting to see, you see heavy Egyptian influence in early America, which is, you know, according to the narrative we've been told, doesn't match up whatsoever, uh, but yet, you know, heavy Roman, heavy Egyptian and heavy, obviously, Norse and, and European influence into America. Well, prior to what we're told about Columbus.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Americas is just has a whole lot of mystery there. And it's just strange how in all the stories the God just come and show them how to build pyramids and give them certain things. And then they just leave and kind of say, well, we'll be back at some point. <laughs> and when, they,
0: and they do it across the world. I mean yeah. from from South America to Asia to the Middle East to to even Europe there's pyramids. I mean we find pyramids all over and 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 it's the same story, right? Like you just said, a god came in, helped us, showed us how to do it and then they moved on their way and it's like okay. How many times is it no longer a coincidence? Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. <laughs> but exactly, if you if you believe the historical narrative, they never came to America. They went everybody everywhere <laughs> else in the world, but didn't come to America, and that's why I I, I find it so hard to believe the story that yeah. basically nothing happened here of any significance until Columbus arrived. I mean, yeah, no,
1: <laughs> it just it's, yeah, no. Sense. There's no way. There's great... I don't know if...
0: Go ahead.
1: Uh, no, I was going to say, I don't know if you've ever heard of, I think it's Cahokia. Cahokia, I think that's the, the word. But apparently somewhere in, I think, the Midwest, there are re- remnants of a huge civilization that could have rivaled the Mayans. And there are, like, mounds that belong to pyramid-like uh, structures. And I think it's called Cahokia. But it's obvious that there was a lot going on here, too.
0: Oh there's mounds found throughout America, right? I mean mounds. Yeah. You look at the Grand Canyon and and supposedly there's some Egyptian monuments in there that nobody yeah. can access because it's all blocked off, but there's there's all sorts of th- very very interesting, you know, and and then that doesn't even tie us into the all the obelisks across the America. I mean, that's another direct tie to Egypt and and the old world. Um, But yeah, the symbolism, that's one of the things that got me too. And I was gonna, I I like how you pointed out in your book, in in many points, there's so much symbolism that's used over and over again, um, to tell these stories. Um, But then Uh, the, the, the other side of it, though, is the symbols can have multiple meanings. And it can be a good meaning and a bad meaning. And, and if you're not aware of what the symbol is, is being presented, you just see it and move on your way. And there's no significance when to them or whoever is putting the symbol out there, there is a vast amount of significance.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I like to say that symbols, especially in the occult, are gatekeepers because your level of knowledge really will show by the way that you react to certain symbols that's why i like to rock the pentagram because to some people they see the pentagram and then they just certainly automatically think satan the devil and they got to run away but to the more initiated they understand that the pentagram is what much more than that so if your own insecurities and your own shadow self is afraid of a symbol that's saying more about you than the symbol so i like to say symbols are gatekeepers
0: Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's as much power as you're willing to invest into it. Um, But there, there is a thing to it though. I have, you know, I have a friend uh, who does a podcast, uh, New York Patriot, and he was in the OTO and, and Mm -hmm. one of the things that he says over magic is real, whether you believe it or not, magic is real. And it's about the intention of the magic. There is good magic and there is bad magic. and, And, you know, why would religion and why would any of the religious texts be any different? There's obviously going to be good intentions and bad intentions. And that's the way we, you know, that's what we have to start to decipher. And uh, but I, I really like the idea of good versus evil, you know, the the this. Eagle versus serpent, all these concepts of, because they have multiple, multiple meanings and multiple uh, iterations throughout history too. And, and you see that over and over again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, most of that from Judaism was influenced by Zoroastrianism. That's a fascinating culture and religion to, to study. And I didn't really know much about it before the book, but I had to get into it for the book because it's obvious that Zoroastrianism influenced Judaism, thus influencing the idea of good and evil. But uh, a lot of that came from, from Zoroastrian, We talked about Angra Mainyu, you know, the evil spirit, and Ahura Mazda, you know, the wise spirit. And a lot of like end times, messianic stuff came from Zoroastrianism. And now that we're in the holidays here in Christmas, not sure when this will come out. But, you know, something that was fascinating to me was, you know, the whole story of Jesus's birth, right? Is is we have the three wise men or the three magi. And that's just like a random thing that's thrown in there, right? It's just like these three magi show up with frankincense, myrrh and, and gold, I think it is. But what people don't understand is who were those magi? Now, Magi is actually a word going back to Persia, for that that uh, denoted the, the Zoroastrian priest, and the Zoroastrian priests were the first ones to come, you know, propose this idea of good and evil, and that a, that a world savior would come in the future. And they believed that that world saver would be a reincarnation of Zoroaster. So when, as the story says, when Jesus' birth was being announced by the angels or what have you, the priests, the magi of Zoroastrianism, which goes back thousands of years before Christianity and Jesus' birth, were waiting for this. So those three magi were actually a link, a very sneaky little link to Zoroastrianism and the multitude of, of, of their sacred beliefs and philosophies that connect to this
0: it's it's interesting how many different ties the christmas story has because you can look at it from that angle then there's the other side of it where you go pure astrology and you have the three stars that are lined up and uh but i had never honestly heard of zoroastrianism either until i got into your book and uh as synchronicities would have it, as soon as I I had just finished it, the the page or chapter a day or two earlier. And then one of my friends was uh, DMing me on Instagram about Zoroastrianism. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is strange. I'd never heard this word in my life. And now I'm hearing it twice in the same week. Uh, I'm still not that familiar with it. Now it's based out of Persia, right?
1: Yes. Based out of Persia and uh, it's sacred texts are the, uh, Uh, what is it called the avenda i'll get back to you on that but yes it's it's based out of uh, persia
0: okay because i was trying to figure that out because when i'm looking at the timeline of these that's another thing that interests me is the way you know you start with and you said in the book if it wasn't for sumeria you wouldn't have judaism right
1: yeah absolutely
0: Uh, i thought that was an interesting can can you expand on that a little bit more
1: absolutely and uh the early scholars who who discovered sumeria that was pretty clear it was pretty clear to them that a lot of the early books like the uh, the genesis account and stem from sumeria and um so judaism of course came out of the levant and when we when we think of judaism we think about you know the jewish community of today but the jewish community of today before they were around and established there was just you know there was just the Levant which is a term that you know, the term that scholars use to denote like Canaan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq and that whole area but that whole area had a whole bunch of religions a whole bunch of different cultures and so that the pre and even early Judaism acknowledged those other cultures and those other deities very early Judaism wasn't monotheistic it was actually polytheistic, with their head deity being El, which we still see shadowed in the Old Testament. And then below El was his sons and family and whatnot. And when we take that pantheon and then trace it back, it's obvious that that pantheon stems from the Sumerian Anunnaki with Anu and his sons and whatnot. Uh, and the priesthoods that followed kept that kept those deities and those traditions alive all the way up to the Babylonian days, because some of the Babylonian king or some of the Babylonian deities, such as Marduk and uh, you know, Estarte or Ishtar, those are those are younger deities going all the way back to the Anunnaki. So in my mind, it's like the first Anunnaki were like Anu, Enki, Enlo, and, and that class. And then their grandchildren and great grandchildren went on to become the deities that were worshipped by the Assyrians and Babylonians who were the contemporaries of Judaism. So all these gods are really talking about the same family, the same class of beings, which were the Anunnaki, because um, we live on a small world, right? So we like to think that the people on the other side of our world are different than us, and, you know, their gods are different, but we live on the same world. So all these stories about gods here, here, and there, if taken for real, are obviously talking about the same people and when we take that idea of those people as far back as we can we get to the sumerian and the anunnaki
0: yeah and they all use very similar gods in in, in a sense Um, but one of the interesting things is most if not all older religions were pagan there were no monotheistic religions until really you got into uh late much, much later. And and that's what I find interesting with you know, when you start you mentioned Christmas before, you look at the the or the the Jesus story, um, Jesus birth story, it's there's so many tales that are wrapped into that. You get into Mithra and 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 all sorts of other stories that all coincide and have now been wrapped into this narrative or different story but it all goes back to the pagan days and and even today the catholic church i mean the, one of the things i know you mentioned in your your book is about you know do not worship idols well idol worship still goes on today and it's if not more today than ever before
1: yeah, yeah, you see it everywhere. And the Vatican has a whole lot of symbology with like the sun and the miter that they wear, that cap, that goes all the way back to Babylonian days. The Vatican to me, man, they're just not, <laughs> they're not it, you know. They're not no. it. They're obviously still propagating the Babylonian and, and ancient customs. And um, but uh, if Jesus is real, or at least the, the, the biblical story, Um, I think it's just cool how he in the Bible was kind of just trying to wake us up and say, like, man, we need to stop doing this weird archaic stuff and realize the true spiritual nature of what this is. I kind of, you know, vibe with that more.
0: Yeah. And the power of one. Right. The power within that you you have the ability to talk with God, to be one with God. You don't need this interface you don't need this building you don't need this person this priest this robed person to be a gatekeeper for you and I think that was really important but it's something we really need today more than ever I mean I feel like we've we've drifted so far away from that today that it's on the verge of collapse I mean during at a time when when you would think that religion was needed most, spirituality was needed most. They closed their doors on their customers, so that just shows you what you need to know about organized religion.
1: Yeah, I don't like church, man. I don't like church. I don't like religion. It played its important part in my life and led me to where I am today. But uh, to me, it's it's obvious psychological, you know, games are, uh, are obvious. You know, when it comes to church and the institution. And on that point, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Mauro Biglino. I didn't mention him in the book, I probably should have, but Mauro Biglino, he's made his rounds on some podcasts and stuff and has a couple books. He used to be a translator for the Vatican. He used to translate ancient texts for them in Latin and other and other languages. And uh he claims that that not only him but the church, the Vatican has known about the Anunnaki and they're pretty much aware that Enki and Lil and Lil were the original source for yahweh and and the monotheism um i haven't dig too deep into that but moral biglino he, he he claims that the vatican knows about
0: this would it surprise you
1: no not at all
0: <laughs> not in the least yeah. my man. i mean yeah. if anybody's hiding secrets it's that place i mean think about i mean if we could get access to the vatican archives the information that's in there the the it would you know change the world that's without a doubt that is the be all end all and for them to be able to hide it away it's like they've just gone over time and throughout wars and history and just collected and destroyed you know destroy anything in its path but we're going to collect anything of any value keep it to ourselves and you guys are shit out of luck i'm sorry (laughs) yeah
1: i don't like those guys man (laughs)
0: Now you say you were religious growing up. Was that like, you know, was it a, a Sunday church thing? Was it, were you confirmed? How, how, how deep did you get into organized religion?
1: Well, I was always going just cause I had to never yeah. liked it. Um, but my dad's side was Catholic. My mom's side was Christian. Um, sometimes we go to my dad's church and me and my sister, I'm the youngest of four, me and my older sister, we're trying to do the communion thing, but we like, later on just backed out where it's like, we don't, we don't want to do this, you know, but we started going to my mom's church, you know, Christian stuff. And it was just always the same, same um, routine, you know, Uh, but, uh, I personally was not religious, but I was, um, what's the word I was, uh, I was indoctrinated to a certain extent. And I was, uh, superstitious, very superstitious growing up as a kid. And as a Mexican, you know, we are told, you know the devil's real, and he's gonna get you if you don't listen. So growing up, like I really believed that uh, the devil was real and that demons were real, and I kind of blame part of that for for certain, just like you know, me- mental like things that I've had to go through over the years. Because in a way, like it's it's a, it's a weird form of schizophrenia, you know, like believing that there's these all these ugly demons out there to get you, and they can harm kids. So I don't have kids, but if I did, I probably would not you know raise them in that type of environment
0: well yeah and the concept of 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 making a mistake and that you're going to burn in hell for that i mean it's just it's so ridiculous i never you know i honestly believed in the whole concept of heaven and hell until about last year and last year i finally started digging into and looking into it and i'm like wow this is just the biggest fear mechanism ever there's really yeah. no substance to it whatsoever. It's just a control mechanism. And and it's, yeah. it's used as a form of, you know, it's like that. It's almost like a mental torture that they put you through to say, okay, if you do anything bad, you're going to pay for it for eternity. And it's like, no, that's not what life's meant to be. This is supposed to be a beautiful journey. You know, you're supposed yeah. to enjoy it. You're supposed to, this is a learning experience for you here uh here and now and and not something that you're you're to be punished for it's your experience and make the most of it but uh, you know if you look on the other side and i'm guilty of this i grew up fearing making that mistake right being afraid to to step out because heaven forbid you you make that mistake and you're gonna pay for it forever and that's that's some heavy guilt right there
1: yeah yeah, it is it played a big uh, role in my life, my younger life. But once I made that change or that transition, it was a paradigm shift. It was hard. And to be honest, when I started learning about the Anunnaki and all these other stuff, I felt like it was demons trying to trick me, you know, like, oh, man, maybe these are just demons trying to trick me. But uh, eventually I just had to like mature and realize that, you know, history is history and facts are facts. And even hell itself as a concept isn't fully developed in the Bible.
0: No. And that's why I mean, I always assumed being Bible illiterate until recently that, you know, it was prevalent that that it was black and white that, you know, you you do this, you go to hell, you sin, you go to hell, you you commit any, any, anything against the 10 commandments, you're going to hell, period. And there's really no retribution for that. And it's like, okay, well, what's the point of life, then? Is it just to be punished? Is it over and over? And that's the way they want to make it seem like, you have to live in this fear because in reality, if we found out how great and how powerful we truly were, then they are powerless. And that's where, you know, and, and if the church were to be powerless or organized religion were to be powerless, then man, they, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think a lot of, and, you know, shout out to like all the local pastors and everybody trying to do good, but I think it's, they're all just misunderstood about the whole thing, you know, it's because to them, it's a job, you know, it's a job and they're taught a certain way when they go to theology school or when they're taught by the older pastors, they're taught the same method, the same technique. And it's so to them, what they're really trying to do is just keep their people coming back because it's their job to do so. And I like—I like to say that church is designed so that you never read the Bible, you know, properly, you know, because it's it's designed in a runaround way. You go there for, you know, sometimes four hours, and you spend a good chunk of that going over just one little passage. They'll say, "Open up your book to this passage." Okay, let's spend the next two hours talk about what I think and what I think you should think this passage means, which is not the way the Bible should be read, in my opinion. You know, it should be read fully and also with accompanying text and information with it, because it's not the end all be all. There's so much more history and and other outside text that you need to couple with it to really understand what is being said. And furthermore, I think it should be important for whoever wants to read and study the Bible to study how it came together, who actually wrote it, why they wrote it, and what was the world like before it came together. And then you'll start to see the full picture of what is being said.
0: Oh, I agree 100%. You absolutely nailed it right there. Because one of the, the key things, too, is understanding not only how, how it was put together, but what was also left out. Because that's just as key as what was put in, is that there were a tremendous amount of books that were left out. And in order to understand the whole picture of the time, I think you need to have that as well. Um, I, I'd love to hear what you think about that.
1: Oh, Absolutely. And in the book, the last chapter is, is about the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch used to be pretty much canon in, you know, in uh, 100 to 200 BC. It was a very respected book. It was widely read. And as uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, you know, the scholar um, who wrote on it, says that uh, it was so important that Paul, it, it was said that it was Paul's go-to book, that apparently he had a little book of Enoch and, and Jesus quotes, the Book of Enoch, there are certain phrases that are that are directly taken from the Book of Enoch. And in the Book of Jude, there is a direct word by word quote from the Book of Enoch. And so the Book of Enoch was, was very important, but later on, it kind of got you know, slowly taken out. And the reason being is because the Book of Enoch talks about falling angels as being physical and being able to interact with humankind. And the church didn't like that um, for a lot of reasons because it just opens up discussions for, you know, again, pretty much the Anunnaki and our real history and who we really are, why we were really created. Um, so, slowly over time, the church did away with the idea of fallen angels or angels being physical. And then it kind of just got more ethereal and they're just these spiritual floating things that are, you know, that never really interacted with us. But, but no, the book of Enoch definitely says otherwise.
0: And that's one of those books, again, I had never heard of until recently. You know, it was about two years ago that I I heard about this book of Enoch. And I'm like, what is this? And then I I started reading it. I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. I'm like, there's no wonder why they're not teaching it, you know, and why it wasn't included. But on the same hand, you know, there's so many stories like that. and, And so many of the Old Testament stories that aren't really taught anymore that are so fascinating that, if they did teach them, you would get people a lot more interested in the Bible because there are, I mean, it's full of just great, amazing stories. But what we've been told is that, you know, yeah, you have to interpret it a certain way. You cannot do it any other way. And that's where I think they lose a lot of people is is that that rigid line of thinking and that inability to be able to take things in multiple ways.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. And the truth is is out there and the truth is greater than the lies and they can't destroy it. So the only thing they can do is try to control the narrative and hide the truth in plain sight. And as I was saying, you know, church is designed so that you never read the Bible properly. And I think, you know, other things are designed the same way, like school is supposed to be the place of education, but it's designed so you don't actually learn. You know, you just learn what they want you to learn. And church is the same way. It's kind of a backwards world that we live in. And I'll give you an example. So the flood story, right? So growing up as a kid or, or as an adult in church, you're told that God wanted to, you know, destroy the earth and cause this great flood. Why? And the number one answer is probably because we were acting up, because we weren't following God. Wrong. Go back and read the story fully, and you'll see that the reason God wanted to flood the earth was because he was trying to get rid of the Nephilim. He was trying to destroy the offspring of gods and man. It wasn't because we were acting up and we were stripping and doing drugs, you know, or whatever. <laughs> it was because there was the, the Anunnaki or the, the gods in a, in a, uh married and mated with us and created that offspring. And that was the reason. And it says in the Bible, that's, that's the reason why he was trying to destroy us. Well, but, uh
0: that's that's a scary thought if you think about what's going on now and if if you think about the you know the whole vaccines and if they're really change have the ability to alter your dna that's not too far off from you know uh humans mating with nephilim it's it's you're messing with god's creation and you're trying to manipulate god and i you know that's why I have a tough time, you know, looking at this and saying, this is not going to have any long repercussions, because if you are trying to manipulate the thing that God created, it's not going to go over too well, because nah. I, he's, pretty, he's pretty protective of his creation.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same lie. You know, as uh, the Christians would say that uh, the same old lies are the same lies that are being repeated today, but it's just in various forms. The three lies that the serpent tells Adam and Eve is that you can be like gods, so you'll live forever, and you'll never die. And you see that everywhere, like, you know, through different forms, like, you know, beauty industry, you know, you'll, you'll look good, you know, you'll be young forever. And then uh, you got the tech you know, world of trying to like link our brains so that we can live forever and all that stuff. It's just the same lies being told in various forms.
0: Yeah, that's the one thing that has escaped everyone, right? Is immortality. That's the one yeah. drug that, that so many <laughs> people crave. I mean, you go, it goes back, you go back to ancient times. I mean, they were always looking for it. I mean, one of the, I remember watching a show one time on uh, one of the, great chinese uh either emperors or generals and he was drinking mercury because he thought it would make him live forever and obviously it eventually poisoned him and made him go insane but people yeah. are always looking for that elixir that that never ending life and you know i in in prior to about 2 years ago would have said okay yeah sign me up i want that and now after Going into a spiritual journey and and getting into some deep religious texts and realizing that this is my journey, this is unique to me, and each of us is on our own journey, and you have the ability to journey multiple times that uh, I, I think we have the ability. This is just one instance. I mean, we do it over and over. It's you reincarnate and, and depending on what you're, you need in that next life, that's going to be your, your life path and your life lesson. And, uh, yeah. and it's on you to learn. And, and if you learn great, I believe you have that chance to advance. And if not, you're doomed to just, you know, they say history, you're you're doomed to repeat its history is doomed to repeat itself. And I think some people are in that never ending loop where they just keep coming back and keep making the same mistake over and over and can't seem to shake it. Whereas others come in here and realize, okay, I need to do, I'm, this is a different purpose. They get on their purpose and move on their way. And, and uh It goes back to the whole concept of heaven and hell again, and and you know not now that I no longer fear the concept of hell and don't fear death anymore, it's life has become a lot less stressful because you don't have to worry about making that mistake. Because if it's a mistake that's made in good heart, it's a mistake. It's it's that simple. And I, yeah. I think a lot more people, if they had that perspective, would be in a lot better place. But so many people. Just think this is it. This is my one shot to do, you know, YOLO, right? You only live once. This yeah. is it. I have to do everything. And I don't care who I hurt along the way because this is about me. And uh and I think it, you know, it's just it's it's unfortunate because there is so much beauty here, and there is so many beautiful, powerful things here that we get lost in this and we get we get trapped in the fear of Lucifer or darkness or hell and we don't see the light and there's plenty of light out there and it's, it's, you know, you got to just look for it.
1: Yeah. It's the sad, it's the same sad story with a lot of the occultists who, who find, you know, the occult truths and then to them, they realize, Oh, maybe if we study this occult and do these rituals and do this and that, we can reach, you know, uh, eternity, we can reach immortality, but it's the same thing. They all end up the same way, you know, disheveled sometimes regretful and really beat up but uh you know i i I admire them though you know for trying for definitely doing the psychic and introspective work of going into the darkness and the unknown to bring back some important truths to us and uh, one of my favorite stories sumerian stories actually is the epic of gilgamesh and that's exactly what it is it's gilgamesh realizing that uh you got one over there oh yeah 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 Oh, it's all. There you go. Yeah. Gilgamesh, it's a fascinating story. I think everybody should read it. Um, it's a, one of the oldest literary stories we have. So it's like as far back as you can go with our roots, you know. Um, but uh, it's a cool story because it's the same story you see everywhere today. So he realizes that he's partially uh, divine. And so he says, well, I'm going to seek out the gods because it's in my right to be one of them and live forever but he was two-thirds divine so he left his kingdom kind of became a hippie with his um with his uh friend Enkidu they went on this crazy journey and try to find the gods and demand them hey I'm two-thirds divine so give me immortality and then through his journey ends up losing his friend ends up becoming crazy and all kinds of stuff happened and the very last scene is him finding his his uh, great ancestor who was the who was Noah who we know of as Noah and uh he tells him look man You're just a mortal. You're going to die. So enjoy your life, eat, drink, and be merry.
0: It's very simple, right? I mean, that, that, that sums it up right there. If, if there's anything to live by and then, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, these stories, there's so many good stories out there that if you take them to heart, like even the book of Enoch, I had never read that prior to last year. And that story is absolutely fascinating. Like you said, you deal with all sorts of, uh, you know, I guess, mystical creatures, angels, demons, Nephilim, you're dealing with all sorts of creatures. Now, what is your feeling on the Nephilim? Um, Were they they all taken out in the flood? Because one of the things that you hear is that some survived, depending on who you talk to. Some survived the flood, but others say no. If the flood was wiped all of them out and they were gone.
1: Well, if we uh, if we take the context from the Bible, the Bible itself says that they survived. It says that the Nephilim were in the days uh, were in the days of the flood and thereafter. And I'm paraphrasing, but the Bible itself says right there they were in the days of the flood and thereafter. And uh, Matthew LaCroix, an OG in, in the truth community, has a cool video where he explains um, his titled Moses and the Nephilim Kings. And he does a good job of explaining that the story of Moses, if you read it in more in depth, it's actually him being him being told by God, by Yahweh, to go out and seek these Nephilim kings and kill the remaining Nephilim kings. So God's like, damn, the flood didn't kill them. Like Moses, go kill the rest of them. Um, so I think that their bloodline is still around, if anything, for sure.
0: And that's, that's an interesting thing when you get into bloodlines, because one of the, the rumors out there is that the ruling elite uh, you know, bloodline is of that Nephilim bloodline still. And, and that's why they are not fully human. They are a hybrid of some sorts.
1: Yeah, they were uh, an abomination, you know, as the gods would say, a mixture between us and the lower-ranking gods. They didn't, the Nephilim weren't the good god. The good didn't get the the, the good genes. They were like the lower-ranking gods who were just like mad that the the upper elite gods were like living lavishly. So they came over here and started pretty much just raping our women, and then this abomination of offspring came out of that.
0: And that's, that's where you get into all sorts of different stories too, right? You have the Rephaim and and all the different offshoots of that, which gets you eventually into Babylon, where you look at the Tower of Nimrod. And again, there, th- there you go. You're trying to get to reach heaven, to reach God's status, man trying to reach the status of God or be an equal to God, Um and I, I find that story fascinating as well. One of my good friends, uh Jason, he's uh goes real deep into Nimrod and that whole Nimrod worship that still goes on today is is an interesting group of people for sure. And it's yeah. you know, it's one of those things that I can't still understand, but it's one of those yeah. dark arts, I guess.
1: Yeah, Alexander Hislop. I have his book. It's called The Two Babylons. Uh, it was written, I think, sometime in the early 1900s. But it's a fascinating book where he shows you that the current Vatican is still practicing the ancient customs of Babylon. And he goes into Nimrod. And, uh, yeah, it's a whole strange spinoff of Nimrod and his mother and some weird, like, kind of Oedipus complex going on there.
0: Yeah, right. And and almost the same story of Osiris, too, right? They chopped off yeah. his genitals or something. and. Yeah, very, very weird story. And that, that gets into the whole Osiris and Isis and Horus. A- and that is another one that, ha- you know, you get that e- those Egyptian symbols, and they're very prevalent in today's society.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Freemasons helped uh, push that as well. I know a lot of their symbology is like Egyptian stuff. But uh, because for the longest time, you know, they were like the oldest civilization we knew. So to us, that was like the fascinating, you know, mystic and enigmatic source of things. But then we found, oh, it goes way further back than that.
0: And what role do you think the Masons play in all this?
1: Well, it's something I've studied for quite some time and it's my mind on them has changed over the years. But uh, I think today, most of them don't even know You know the true meaning behind their 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 symbols and their origins and their origins are pretty faulty even like you know very uh studious freemason scholars will say that you know their origins are kind of unknown you know of course there's a whole knight's templar thing but um their role to put it basic i think their role was the european man um safeguarding ancient knowledge and creating a custom, a tradition that could preserve it all throughout time for a point in time where a generation would be born that could understand the symbols and understand the history intuitively and fluidly. So that's, I think, what their role is. It's just They just were just holding these symbols and traditions long enough for somebody to be able to decipher them.
0: And being that, you know, all our forefathers for the most part were Masons, it's almost like this was supposed to be the area that was supposed to be their great work. Right. America was supposed to be the great Mason work, whether it was Scottish free right or or um, you know, regular Freemasonry, you you have you had the French and the English battling over this land. And it was almost like it was a Freemason battle over who yeah. you know, which right was going to have the land to rule over and uh and and you saw it in the forefathers i mean it's heavy it's prevalent in in all of the forefathers of, of our country um especially george washington uh you know and yeah. uh, and such so it definitely plays a role in america but I I'm with you. I don't know where it really starts because you mentioned the Knights Templar, and and that's kind of where you, you see them go away, and then the Freemasons kind of show up, and they yeah. have some associations with King Solomon as well, which yeah. and, and some ties to Solomon's Temple with Hiram Abiff and and all that. So that's a very there. It's just amazing how all these stories intertwine and 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 yeah. It's all connected. Well, yeah, yeah,
1: and because and we live on the same world, you know. When I was younger, like I, it was uh, surprising to me, like, dang, there's all these connections. But then I started to realize, like, well, it makes sense because we live on the same world, you know. So eventually, the thing, whatever's on the east will make its way to the west. Whatever's on the west will make its way to the east. It's all revolving. It's all connecting, and li- like, li- like literally and figuratively, you know. Uh, because uh, Solomon, on that subject. The Ark of the Covenant, after it's destroyed, or after the temple is destroyed, I think the second time, the the Bible just randomly stops talking about the Ark of the Covenant, just doesn't bring it up anymore. And you have this whole history that Graham Hancock did a good job of unraveling about the Ark of the Covenant ending up in Ethiopia. And strange thing is today, Ethiopia has one of the oldest um, populace of, of Jewish people a populace of people who are practicing Jewish customs that go far back. So uh, yeah, eventually things just make their way around and connect.
0: Well, and Ethiopia is also one of the places that still has the book of Enoch in their Canon um, in the Ethiopian Bible. So that's, that's an Ethiopia is a very fascinating spot because I think there's a lot more to that area than we're led to believe and why they've, essentially you know let it starve itself and destroy itself from within because that land i think it has much more historical significance i mean you look the rumor is one of the lost tribes ended up there um possibly yep. uh you know but you look and and like you said it's just the, the history that's there and and there's t- lots of old texts that they're finding they they end up finding in Ethiopia. So. I really think Ethiopia is one of those important nations if we were to really be able to see what really happened and and what significance we played.
1: Yeah, a quick little plug here, but I just uploaded a documentary on it on my YouTube channel. Oh, you did? On on Ethiopia, yeah. It's a compilation documentary. So it's just like one of those where I took cool clips from certain videos and put it all together to kind of build a narrative. Oh, uh,
0: check that out. That's great.
1: Yeah, I love Ethiopia, and I love, like, Rasta Rasta culture. I got a Mm -hmm. lot of friends that are are into that. Um, So I I like their, like, perception of the Bible and stuff. It's pretty cool. Actually, that painting back there has kind of got some of that in there. My friend gifted me that. Oh, that's sick. It's like a a jaw, you know, the Rasta version of of Yah, and then he's throwing – the queen of England and Trump and, and the, and the Pope in the fire. I feel, I feel no way towards any of them. That's just the artists threw that in there, but oh,
0: it's, a, it's a great idea. They can have yeah. them all. fire can have them. All. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so any, anything else you want to hit on?
1: Uh, let me see. you kind of just digging on my notes. Um, let me see here. So we kind of went over a lot of that stuff. Um, kind of kind of went over all the basics uh
0: yeah we were bouncing I around i didn't I, I was hoping i'd go in kind of chronological order but i got distracted and went from you know we were bouncing around and, and anytime i can get into enki and enlil i, I love to hear that story because i i've bounced back and forth on the whole anunnaki so many times um about four or five years ago i got really into it and uh and and Fell hard into believing it. And then I started reading some opposing views. And I was like, okay, so I I, I kind of sat on the fence for a while. And then recently I got back into it. And when I was reading your book, now I got uh, Gilgamesh back out. And I got a couple other of the old uh, uh, Sumerian text novels I want to bust back out and read. Um, yeah. One that I haven't got into, I, I was wondering if you had read it. Have you read the Enuma Elish?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I got a couple versions of it. I think I got uh, Leonard King's uh, translation.
0: Yes. That's the one that I had. I just, I actually just got it the other day in the mail um, because I, and funny, you mentioned Matt before, because Matt LaCroix is one of the guys that really his book stage of time and, and, and all the work that he does really got me into going back to ancient history because I, you know, I'm a history guy and I like modern history. I'm big into the 1800s and uh time frames like that but when he started going way back and then you get into like you said also Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock and they start pushing that timeline back even further and that's yeah. what really got my attention now I'm now I'm really into it because no one knows you, you yeah. know honestly they tell you certain things in history books but the more we start digging and uncovering things that narrative is slowly falling apart and you know, I, I I don't care one way or another what's real. I want to just know what's the truth, you know, and that's kind of yeah. why I started the podcast to get into things and, and talk with, you know, interesting people like yourself about topics like this, that, you know, I'm not going to be able to go walk into my local convenience store and just drop the Anunnaki on them because they're going to no. look at me like I got four heads, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although a lot more people are taking it serious. And uh actually I was, I was going to school many or before I um, dropped out of college because my, I had a dream of maybe being one of the first scholars, you know, to teach that as history. I think that'd be cool. I think we need that because a lot of people, a lot of uh, Sitchin's detractors, you know, um, they make up some good points. They make some good points. But what I found is a lot of the, his detractors, like, they've never even really finished one of his books, let alone the whole series. And um, I've looked at both sides and I have my own, you know, uh, critiques of Sitchin as well, but I think he did a phenomenal job at speculating our past. I mean, if you read the whole series, the whole Earth Chronicle series, you can't walk away with that with, without saying that he was definitely on to something, at the very least, if not making some very fascinating, um, you know, speculations about the Anunnaki in our past, for sure.
0: Now, do you think they were here or? The story is, is that we were created basically as slaves to mine gold, right? Because they needed yeah. gold to line their atmosphere. Um, yeah. Now, I don't know how much I, I put into that, but I do really, the more I look into it, like you were saying before, I think they have a serious role in the creation of, of at uh-huh. least the beginning, because, you know, or modification of us, because it seems like there were beings here before us, um, but not quite of human capacity, I would say, you know, brain capacity, they were more low functioning uh, uh, beings. Yeah. And, and it seems like if you believe the Anunnaki story that they were the ones who were able to make that last magical touch to, to the humans to, to get us over the hump and get us to the stage that we're at today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, uh, of course, have the Sumerian king list, which is a physical text, which talks about a legendary list of rulers. And that first ruler goes all the way back to 400,000 years ago, roughly. So that's a phenomenal number. And then we also have what's called the missing link in anthropology, which is uh, the phenomenon uh, um, which states that we can't find the link from how we went from like homo, uh, erectus and neanderthal to homo sapien we just can't find that link and there's just a whole strange controversy there and it is strange how we were existing as hominids for man hundreds of thousands of years and then randomly in the blink of an eye we're just building pyramids and all this stuff and you know we could have it, it could have been very possible that we could have went from hominid low hominids uh, to just suddenly being this like upright conscious thinking civilization building people on our own but what makes it more significant and fascinating is when we listen to our ancestors and what they wrote down and tell us, they tell us right there, right as day, we do everything that we do for the gods and because of the gods. So, I mean, if that's what our ancestors are telling us, maybe we should listen.
0: Hey, that's a novel concept, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's amazing how we've lost that touch, though. We know best now. You know, we have everything in the palm of our hand. The answer is right there. And that's that's a very scary thought because many people are misled to thinking they're much more powerful than they are because of that tool. When in reality, without that tool, you're so much more powerful. That is almost a device that's draining you of some of your power.
1: Yeah absolutely yeah it's, it's one of those things again like truth in, in plain sight you know the bible's design or church is designed so that you don't read the bible fully Education's designed so you don't actually learn and, and technology's designed so you actually don't have personal power you think you do but you don't because yeah. you're just trapped to it and, and but uh, all those things so all three of those things have a great uh, implications if used correctly
0: Oh, oh, most certainly. They, they have the potential, but then they also have that detriment. It's that, again, good and bad. You know, there's, there's, there's the yin and yang to all of it. Um, what You mentioned before the Sumerian king list, and I forgot where I heard it, but uh, on one of the podcasts I was listening to, they were talking about the Sumerian king list and that the list goes back, or, or if you add up all the years of the reign, it adds up to 432,000 years which is very interesting when you think of frequency because 432 hertz is the freak you know the frequency of life the natural frequency that that for that list to add up to that it's like wow that's some synchronicity right there and there's there's something to it
1: yeah there's a lot of levels to the way you can look at you know knowledge esoteric knowledge i primarily look at it through an. Mind, but I, I understand that there's also other ways to view it like the metaphysical way um there's like the Kabbalah way like some people believe that you know the story all the stories of gods and ancient aren't real they're all mythology and it's actually a story telling us how the body works in conjunction with the soul so there's a lot of different ways of viewing the esoteric knowledge i primarily stick to the historical side of it but uh there, there's a lot to the number and the science and the metaphysical aspect that is kind of snuck in there as well.
0: Yeah. Cause that was one of the things I was going to ask you if you had ever uh, gotten involved with any gematria or anything like that.
1: Yeah. Well, it plays a role in my life a little bit um, for some weird reason. Ever since I was a kid, the number five, I've always taken as my spiritual number. don't you know, really, I, it was kind of a silly thing when I was a kid. My name's Eddie it's five letters E's the fifth letter, but for some reason, it's always showed up in my life. So I know that's not particularly Gematria, but, you know, like spirit numbers and stuff like that does play a weird role in my life personally. But Gematria specifically, I think it's fascinating how the Hebrew language, how it can also be used as like a binary code system through Gematria. And there's a whole school of scholars there who, who look through the Bible using the Gematria system and are finding these hidden you know, stories and hidden phrases in there. So there's a whole lot more going on. It's not just face value knowledge or face value history about us and some gods. There's also definitely some deeper matrix stuff going on.
0: And that's what gets, it gets interesting because when you start getting into the numbers, right, that starts, like you said, getting into the matrix, it starts boiling down to ones and zeros. And you're like, Oh man, are we, are we just a bunch of ones and zeros here? (laughs) Well,
1: uh, I didn't want to bring this up because I've been too fanatic about it lately, but I, I, uh, I just read the cia's declassified document on project gateway not sure if you've had a chance to check it out
0: i have I also not dropped... read it yet but i've 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 read you know synopses of it but go go right ahead i'm fascinated by this
1: absolutely uh i just dropped a documentary on it too on my channel which i did a summary of it it's pretty cool but uh yeah this stuff is fascinating so uh the cia through the 80s did a report on the findings of uh, the monroe institute and the monroe institute exists today they have a school i think in like colorado or something where they will teach you slowly through a training uh, program how to astral project how to go to different dimensions and how to do all kinds of other things and uh in the cia document you know um, lieutenant mcdonnell the guy who makes the summary for the cia goes through his findings and his understandings of quantum physics and the universe and. He basically says, "Well, we do live in a holographic, simulated universe, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're fake or anything like that. It just means that that's how the the quantum mechanics of our universe work on an anatomic level, and at an atomic level, and um, that we can access we can access the other dimensions, we can access these other places, and the mainframe, which they call the absolute." So that document is is fascinating. And it more or less proves that, yeah, we are a hologram. We are simulated, but, and that our true self our true entity is consciousness. It says that we are consciousness and that there, there is an afterlife and that we can return to that afterlife um, with memory of this. And I was going to point this out earlier too, when it came to heaven and hell and all that stuff, um, the great yogis, you know, like Yogananda and, and those guys made the realization that, you know, this is all a hologram this is all false and that the point of here or one of the points of here should be that we should be getting into our spiritual self and reaching back to the light which the cia document would have called the absolute or the mainframe or as edgar casey would have called it the akashic records
0: oh that's another fascinating one the akashic records that's for sure and that's that's basically the record of everything right that's yeah. the book of, book of everything that has ever taken place every anything that ever will take place it's all in that book
1: yeah it's fascinating stuff
0: Oof. Man. i don't know <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i want to see that though you know that's that catch-22 if you know what's gonna happen you know you it's like the butterfly effect. Can you change it by just doing one thing differently? I wouldn't want to be the one that screws everything up. <laughs>
1: I know. Which is weird, though, in the in the CIA document, they say that in the mainframe, the absolute, where infinity exists, which would be the equivalent of the Akashic records, that once you're there, you can't enter back into this reality, which, which they call the time-space dimension, unless you become energy in motion again. And and when I read that, I was like, huh? Well, maybe this is what like rituals and alchemy and magic really is, is is trying to get these spirits or these holograms of, you know, past lives or past people to come back here for you know a quick second or quick moment. I don't know. It's just it's fascinating that could be stuff.
0: that could be what the whole purpose of CERN is, right? Is to be able to to get to that other side and or or allow that doorway to open to allow the other side to come in, and that's. That's where you get into some really crazy stuff. You yeah. know, you start thinking about bringing yeah. entities in and from the other side, and and that's you know I listen to uh, Tinfoil Hat uh, with yeah. Sam Tripoli, and, and he's I talking about it all the time, right? Is that they're 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 trying to let in these dark entities from the other side, and man, if that if that is the case, that would that could would make sense as to one way to do it, right? Oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can see. I think there's a lot of truth to that for sure, and I think it's something I might tackle in, in the next book because I've been really diving deep into that. And like Carl Jung, and Carl Jung, he gave us the idea of this collective unconscious or collective subconscious, which is pretty much the same idea of like the Akashic records. Just finished his book on flying saucers, and his take on them is just insane, and I kind of changed the way I think about them as well. But yeah, I definitely, and I watched a document recently, I forgot his name, but he's a master occultist, and he says that Solomon magic, or Solomonian magic, which is what the modern occult is based on, was actually the first form of psychology. So really, we're like we have all these terms and philosophies for the same thing you know whether it's magic occultism science so on and so forth spiritualism we're all talking about the same thing just through different terms so we exist here but there are other realms and then there's a mainframe realm and in between all of that are all kinds of spooks and creatures
0: oh yeah imagine what's in in, lurking in between oh your yeah. your your wildest fantasies are probably anywhere in between right and that's that's yeah. what's interesting too because you start i mean I always fantasize as a kid about dragons and you know then you then you get out of that kid phase and from about teenager till young adult they just beat it out of you that there's no such thing, but yet you're supposed to believe in dinosaurs, but there was never dragons or anything yeah. and uh and I start thinking about all the you know the creatures and things that we were saw in movies and cartoons as kids that could possibly have been real because what we're finding out now is a lot of what they're putting in movies as far-fetched as it may seem has small bits of truth in it and, yeah. and they, they're slowly like disseminating and letting out the truth through movies it seems
1: yeah i was just talking about that to my wife earlier we went to go watch uh, the spider the new spider-man movie with their little brother the spider-verse or it's got the multiverse theme in it and then as we were before we watched that movie a preview for another movie came on for for the multiverse it's this whole other movie about the multiverse i am seeing this whole idea about the multiverse being more prevalent in in pop culture and i was like man are they preparing us for something you know but i think a lot of it too is just that people are, are uh fascinated with the subjects especially directors in hollywood a lot of people in hollywood especially you know classical hollywood they you know 80s and 90s they knew about this stuff you know they knew this stuff so they were fascinated by it too so they used it as in, as an inspiration for their movies like uh, george lucas george lucas confronted zechariah sitchin um, and asked him to like break him down what the anunnaki and Samaria mythology was so that he could gain some inspiration for the star wars movies
0: And that's one Star Wars takes a little bit of everything also, you know, they take a little bit of all sorts of religions and esoteric knowledge and beliefs and and bring that in together. Uh, A good buddy of mine, um, Conspiracy Kyle, he does a conspiracy in the force podcast, he just wrote a book on uh, Star Wars and, and today it's called uh, uh, something intergalactic totalitarianism. And it ties in how, you know, start the, in the Star Wars realm and in our realm there, you know, there's very similar patterns that they follow. Um, and yeah. it's it's interesting because, you know, like Star Wars, even that movie, you know, you think about the concept of the force and, yeah. and that's a very powerful concept in itself. But yet you can think of it as, oh, it's just a stupid movie. It's just Star Wars. You know, there's no such thing as the force. There's no such thing as, you know, any of this. But. Oh, I, I I get more and more excited the more movies I watch now because now I'm I'm looking at it with the my eyes wide open that anything is possible. I, I'm done. Yeah. You know, I I used to rule everything out as I was the ultimate skeptic. As you know, ah, it's not. Now I'm looking at it from the other side, and it's a much more fascinating way to live. Honestly, like looking at things and thinking, okay, yeah, maybe that is possible, as opposed to now nah, that's stupid. Let's just move on. It, it, you yeah. know, it gives you, it gives you a little different perspective on things.
1: Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I like, I love movies and stuff like that and tripping out on them and they get fat. I like it when, when uh, like Godzilla, the newest Godzilla movie, um, or one of the newer ones when they were like scuba diving to go find him in that like ancient temple in the background, there were some Sumerian, um, like depictions and stuff. And I was like, Hey, that's what's yeah, there it is. you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's, it's funny you mentioned that because Godzilla and King Kong, those movies have been dropping all sorts of, you know, interesting knowledge on us between Middle Earth and the Firmament. And they, I mean, they hit all sorts of conspiracies in the latest movie. But then, like you said, in the other ones, when they start going down, you're starting to see old texts. You know, you said you said you saw the Sumerian stuff. I mean, you you wouldn't have seen that in the past. Maybe in the Indiana yeah. Jones, you get a little touch of it here and there, but that's about it.
1: Yeah. And as Jung would say, like the archetypes, you know, play a huge role in our lives and um, certain archetypes are just going to keep recycling and coming back out, you know, through our artistic expressions. For sure, And I
0: think, I think we're in a time now where uh, knowledge is, you know, people are trying to get as much knowledge as possible and people are trying to get outside that box that we've been put in, in, you know, with that restrictive thinking and trying to understand some of the possibilities and things that, you know, we were told that were just science fiction in the past, but it, the more and more we're looking at it now, it was more reality than, than anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend, close friend. He's uh he's like a gamer and just loves like video game lore. And, um but he's recently started getting into like actual history and he's like, well, man, like, history is way more fascinating and what makes it even more fascinating is that it was real or at least it's 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 our lore you know our lore our history our mythology is like way more sci-fi than than any of the movies i think
0: oh yeah Yeah, the version that we've been given is a much more dulled down version than the real one. I mean, if we can, I would give anything to go back to, you know, ancient Egypt or any of those times when you had some of these, like you said, Sumeria, go back there and just be one of those hovering over visuals. I don't want to, I don't want to go walk the ground. I want to see what it was (laughs) like, you know, just be able to dip in.
1: Yeah, that'd be cool, man. Dang. Imagine that.
0: Oh, it'd be great. Eddie, I, 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 this has been great, man. I, uh, I truly enjoyed this conversation. You have, uh, have hit on a few things that now I'm going to go dig a little bit more and I want to go, I'm going to check out Gilgamesh again because I haven't read that in a while. Um, but thank you, my friends. Is there uh, any, anything else you want to want to pitch? You want to drop your book on us?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, the book is out now on Amazon, uh, paperback, hardback, Kindle version, or you can DM me directly at Instagram on Instagram at esoteric Eddie. If you want to purchase one through me directly and, uh, just go check out the YouTube esoteric Eddie TV, I'm uploading documentaries and videos on there uh, as much as I can, but, uh, yeah, so stay tuned. A lot of, a lot of cool things will be coming out over the next few years.
0: Excellent. I'll put links to all your stuff in the show notes. Um, this was great, man. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I thank you so much. Uh, everyone, go out. Uh, check out Eddie's YouTube page. He's got some cool videos out there. And I definitely, I highly recommend his book, uh, Lucifer, The Hidden Mystery.
1: Look, Mystery Revealed. Don't oh, my <laughs> uh, you're, you're the third host to, to get it
0: wrong. But <laughs> okay, it's kind so of let's a tongue we twister. We're going Lucifer, <laughs> Mystery Revealed by Eddie know All right. Eddie, thank you so much, my friends, everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, Feel free to uh, hit Eddie up on Instagram and uh, give him a follow and uh, everyone have a great night. Thank you. Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and depression. And where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have sensors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and subduing your submission. we need cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you. And in your panic, you turned to the now High Chancellor, Adam Suttler. He promised you order. He promised you peace. And all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent.